Welcome everybody to the deep dive. I'm your host, Tim, and you are here and I am here. Make sure that you're subscribed to the channel. Make sure you're hitting that like button. Make sure that you're hitting that notification bell so that you can always know when we're going live. On the deep dive, we dive deep into the biblical text. And this year, it is all about the book of Romans. So let's head into it, shall we? Romans, verse by verse, last week I issued you a challenge to be here for this week because I really felt that last week when we talked about Romans chapter 1 and the demise of human societies, not just in Paul's day, not just in the years or centuries before Paul and the book of Romans, but also even in our day, in our American experiment right now, the rebellion of men's hearts, the rejection of God, and then God handing people over to their rejection of, of him and him handing them over to their desires, their sins, their lusts, and then the replacement of devout religious devotion to God with devout religious devotion to sex and sexuality. That's where we are. And I issued you a challenge. And I said, I bet that there's a bunch of people who are listening. And I previewed this week who said, I won't be there next week because he's going to talk about me. And that's exactly what we're going to talk about as we head into chapter two of the book of Romans. Let's head in, shall we? Yes, indeed, the book of Romans. Let's let's take a look at my Bible cam right off the bat. And what I've done, and I encourage you to do, is f write stuff in the margins of your Bible. Write stuff where you will remember certain things that are important, like I put the theme of Romans right here uh, by verse 16 and 17 of chapter 1. And then I put a line between chapter 1 and chapter 2. And chapter 2 uh, up, or I would call it the end of chapter 1, is I put this word, rebellious, because because Paul has been talking to the rebellious people. Now in chapter two, he turns, he turns his attention to the, re the religious people. So rebellious, which is what we talked about last week, right? Slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil. Now religious. And, and this is going to be tough for a lot of people because it's going to turn the table on us. It's going to turn the table on, on who we are. Let me give you the illustration that I gave last week. I'm pointing a finger. I'm pointing a finger at you, but there are three fingers pointing back at me. And when we point the finger, it's an old adage. We got to remember there are three fingers pointing back at us. And that's exactly what Paul is going to get into uh, in this text. So let's head into it in chapter two of Romans. Verse one, Romans chapter two, verse one. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, Every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Okay. I just remembered I forgot to pray, and I really want us to pray. So can we open our hearts to God? Father, speak to us and lead us through this text. Help me to say what you want me to say and help us to hear what you want us to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So he right off the bat starts by saying you. Okay, look, look, look at that. <laughs> look at that word right there because it's been real fun to talk about them, but now he's gonna talk about you. And it's important that you note with me that he moves here from third person plural in chapter one to second person singular here in chapter two. S hear that again. It's not you plural. This is you 
singular. We don't have a discrepancy in the English language for you as plural or singular, but in the Greek, it's obvious. And so really he's saying, therefore, you person over there who judges, you are guilty. What? Yes. Remember, now back in 118, Paul has described the sin and judgment of the Gentiles using the, 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 the experiences of those evil people, which we talked about last week a lot. God bringing judgment on them their sexual morality, their boastfulness, their pride, their hubris, right? And now he's turning the table from those rebellious people to the religious people, but he does something unique here. It's, um, it's an ancient form of dialectic argument where he, he targets one person. He's not targeting one person in the church. He's targeting this, this fictitious person, which really applies to all of us. And he's talking to that religious Jewish person in this context, who's also a Christian, who is very prone to look down their noses at those rebellious Gentiles, those pagans. And it's a very common device. It's a very common experience of religious people where we are so prone, and I say we because I'm included here, we are so prone to look at the evil of our society and as Paul, you know, rightly talks about here in verse uh, 31 of chapter, chapter one, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, right? Or, or, or even earlier, filled with all manner, verse 29, of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, and malice. It's very easy. It's very common for us to look at the people that we see in our world and say, they're so evil. But Paul turns the table on us and says, no, you practice the very same things. Now, now I know you're thinking, well, I, I don't commit sexual immorality. I don't do those things. Okay, but we do these things in our hearts. Even if we don't do them in our being, we do them in our hearts. And what we have is a problem of, and Robert Mounts talks about this in his commentary in the book of Romans. We have a problem of projection. Projection is when you look at people doing the thing that you do and you judge them for it. Uh, nothing, he says, blinds a person more than the certainty that only others are guilty of moral faults. <laughs> uh, it, it's called projection. And I think we are seeing that big time in our society. I'll give you an example from four years ago when Donald Trump was running for office and everybody knew he was a playboy. And then the video came out with him really saying some derogatory things about women and the treatment of women. Hollywood raged against him. And then immediately they turned on themselves and they went after uh, the, the, the director there, Harvey Weinstein and Kevin Spacey, the actor and a whole other sort of characters who were guilty of the same stuff. And I always thought like this, this is, this is what we do. We, we project our own faults on others. We hate that person, but really the hatred is because we know deep down inside, we are doing that. You will find this with uh, politicians, but you will also find this with preachers. Whatever a preacher most often excoriates, he's probably guilty of, especially if that's the only sin he talks about, like, or he says, that's the sin. That's the worst, right? There's a good chance that he is guilty, as Paul says, guilty of the very same thing. 
because we know that the judgment of God falls on those who practice such things. We project our sins, and here's what it really is. It's our cultural moment. I call it judginess. And judginess, okay, is attempting to produce a sense of moral superiority by pointing out our own flaws in the lives of others. Those people. Oh, those people over there. They're so evil. And by the way, you don't have to be religious to be judged. You can be irreligious and be judged. People of all political stripes are judging. Young people can be judging. Old people can be judging against young people. Men against women. Women against men. And these are the divisions of our culture, right? And what do we do is we, we point out that person who sins in a blatant way, but in our hearts, we know that, that, that there's that resident sin inside of us. Because listen, everybody struggles with the same exact stuff. I mean, we have nuances to it, but we all struggle. We all struggle with a sense of moral superiority. We all struggle with a sense of sexual morality. We all struggle with greed. We all struggle with idolatry. We all struggle with jealousy and envy and malice and hatred. We all struggle with these things. It's just how it plays out in our lives. Some are expressive and explosive and they don't give a rip and they're going to get out on the television set and they're going to just do it on a stage with adoring fans. And then some of us are going to do it behind closed doors where nobody's looking and we're just as bad and we're just as bad. And then this is what our phones do. Our phones. Oh my gosh. They empower us to have a 24 hour a day window into the lives of other people and then make an accurate assessment in our minds of how bad they are. That's really what we're doing. Like on our phones, this is, this is the picture. Like we're on our phones scrolling, looking at someone doing something evil. And really what that person is, is it's just someone sitting differently than you. <laughs> it's really what it is. Oh, I can't believe them. Oh, I don't understand them. Well, I, I know because Jeremiah says the heart of man is beyond understanding. No one can understand it. So we look at the sins of others and we project onto them our own guilt. And this is where Paul is going in Romans chapter two. And he's going to do something that deconstructs all of us because you don't have to be a religious person to have a religious spirit. You don't have to be a religious person to have a judgmental spirit. And we're going to talk about that today on the deep dive. So let's continue on in the text. Verse three, he says, do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, again, from the heart, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance with patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? So here Paul turns their attention to two qualities of God here. Uh, back up on the screen. He, he turns their attention to the kindness of God and the patience or the forbearance of God. And then he uses this word, presume. And the word presume here means that you despise his grace. You despise the riches of God's grace. And this is exactly what judgmental people do. They don't like seeing God's grace expressed to those people. Did you notice also how the text ends in verse four? Look at it. You, you, you don't know that God's kindness is actually his tool to lead you to repentance? Like, think about this for a second. Don't mistake God's patience, God's forbearance on those people to mean that he's okay with it, that the wicked prosper, and I, and I think that this is what religious people really struggle with, is the patience of God. Why does God let them get away with it? He, he's not letting them get away with it. We're going to get to that in just a moment. But many times over the course of history with his people, uh, Israel experienced 
the patience of God. And many times beyond Israel's experience, God was patient. In fact, I want to put it up on the screen here. God's patience with the nations because it's incredible. He's got centuries long patience with people. So let's take a look at it. Like he was 400 years patient with Pharaoh as Pharaoh mistreated his own people. Did you ever think about that? He waited 400 years to judge Pharaoh and the nation of Israel, uh, Egypt for mistreating Israel. He waited 450 years at the same time, concurrent, concurrently, for the people of the land of Canaan to repent. In fact, that's why God gives Israel that land. He says, they did not honor me. They did not repent. So I'm giving you their land and you're going to be my instrument of judgment upon them. God waits 700 years as the northern kingdom of Israel, the 10 tribes of Israel that, that defected from David, as they sinned and went apostate, and then eventually he handed them over to Assyria. God waited 800 years for the southern kingdom of Judah before he handed them over to Babylon. Now, consider this, Americans. We're 245 years old. Some people, some Christians worry me when they're always like, why doesn't God judge America? Well, He's being patient because he has this incredible gift of being patient. He's also using that patience to lead us to repentance. That is what God is presently doing. And, and, and we, we've got to be aware of this for our own lives, that we don't despise the patience of God. That's the word presume. Okay, back to the text, verse 5. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Okay. He says, listen, if you don't, if you don't take note of what's going on in your life with regard to your heart, religious person, you are doing the very same thing that the rebellious people are doing. Rebellious people are not repenting and they're storing up wrath. Well, religious people who don't repent and turn to see, and turn to the Savior, which he's going to get to in a moment, they're also storing up wrath. You know what God is doing? I'm not, not God, I'm sorry. Well, God is doing it, but he's doing it through the Apostle Paul. And what Paul is doing here is he is leveling the playing field. There's an old saying, the ground at the foot of the cross is level. That means that rebel, rebellious people, religious people, moral people, immoral people, all come to God from the same footing repentance and turning to Christ. And religious people are not exempt from the wrath of God. See, see, because we all have a religious spirit because it is human nature to love God's patience with us and judgment on them. But God calls us all to repentance. Okay, so that is what this text means. That's where Paul is going here. And, and we have to realize that he's unpacking two groups of people in Romans chapter 1 and 2. Those two group of people, the rebellious and the religious. The rebels, chapter 1, those Gentiles, those pagans, those people with natural law, natural revelation, who despise God, suppress the truth, and then turn themselves over to idolatry. And now he's going to turn those three fingers pointing back on you religious people who love to point your finger. You had the law. You have God's special revelation. And if you're honest, your heart is drawn to the exact same evil as those rebellious people. So that is what it meant. And here's where he's going. Here's where he's going. He's going to uh, deconstruct a religious spirit 
from this point on. That, that spirit that supposes being mad about the sins of others achieves in me some semblance of personal righteousness. Or the spirit that believes that, that we are special because we know the Bible. Or the spirit that says, I might have my problems, but I'm not as bad as those people. That, my friends, is a religious spirit. And can I tell you that it is far more common that people walk away from God through religious spirits than they do through rebellious spirits. Because nothing makes you more blind than thinking you can see clearly. This is what Paul, this is what Jesus said to the Pharisees. You are blind guides. This is what he said to those who were righteous in themselves in his day because they thought they were good people and they weren't like those pesky, evil tax collectors and sinners. In fact, there's a very famous story that Jesus tells. It comes from Luke 18, verse 10. It says, two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. Oh, I thank you that I'm not like those people, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Like he's pointing to the guy praying next to him. I thank you that I'm not like him. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, here's the difference. Here's the difference. The tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And then Jesus summarizes this in verse 14. What does he say? I tell you, here's the truth I'm trying to convey. This man, the man who beat his breast and would not lift up his eyes to heaven and pleaded for mercy, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The Pharisee did not go home justified. The Pharisee, that the, the religious spirit was rejected. My point, Jesus's point, is the, I get the point from Jesus. It is far more common that we miss God through religiosity, moral superiority, a sense of I'm better than them than we do through rebellion and wickedness. Another example, Luke 15. Remember the story of Luke 15 is about the prodigal son. Well, really there's three stories, but the last story is about the prodigal son. Jesus or Luke sets that story up for us in verse 1 of chapter 15, when he says the tax collectors and the sinners were drawing near to Jesus, and then the Pharisees and scribes grumbled and said, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So, so as the, the rebellious people draw near to Jesus, which by the way, is exactly where they should be, the, the religious person says, oh, this man, how dare he hang with those people? And to that crowd, he tells the story of the prodigal son. We think that the prodigal son story is about finding your way back to God. The prodigal son goes and wastes his father's inheritance on prostitutes and wild living. Um, he comes to himself when he's in the pig pen. He returns to the father. The father restores him to right relationship. Beautiful story. Well, we think that that's the point of the story. You know, come to yourself and come back to God. That's not the point of the story. The point of the story is don't be the older brother. 
The point of the story is verse 28, that the older brother, when he heard the party, when he heard the rejoicing, he refused to go in and celebrate that his brother was back. And then he complained to his father. And see the, the, the similarities here of the Pharisees to the, young, to the older brother and the prodigal son. He complains to his father, these many years I have served you. That's a religious spirit. And I never disobeyed. That's, that's moral superiority. Yet you never gave me a young goat. That's an entitlement spirit that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, when, when those people, when those people come and hang out with you, you who have devoured your property, who haven't lived morally, <laughs> you kill the fattened calf for him. Notice the tie-in between the meals, okay, the meals and the gathering of the sinners back to the Savior. I believe nothing keeps more people away from God, from salvation, than a sense of moral superiority. And I just want to make sure that we're clear. You do not have to be a religious person to have a sense of moral superiority. <laughs> you don't. And we're going to get into that today on the deep dive. So what Paul is doing is deconstructing a religious spirit. Three points about a religious spirit. The spirit that believes that something about you makes you superior to others. It could be your ethnicity. It could be your education. It could be your social status. It could be in this world. It could be your victimhood. <laughs> You know, there's this spectrum of victimization in America. So the more victim categories you can claim, uh, racial minority, poor, indigent, um, sexual minority, uh, you know, gender fluid, whatever. So the more victim statuses that you can claim, now you are morally superior to those people who misgender you or are hateful bigots toward you or are ableists or are, you know, xenophobes, whatever. The religious spirit abides in all humans, but it particularly abides in church people. <laughs> because secondly, a religious spirit believes that God is certainly on your side and not on their side because of who you are. <laughs> and that's who the Jews were at the time of Jesus. And then a religious spirit plays the comparison game based on outward behavior while ignoring inward conditions. And, and this is how we get, ladies and gentlemen, CRT. Because CRT is the modern religious movement of the day, critical race theory. The idea that there are oppressors and there are oppressed. There are people who are evil and we oppressed are the righteous. And now it's time to destroy the system. Now it's time to undermine the system because of inequality. The system has to be dismantled and rebooted. It comes from Karl Marx. Oh, and by the way, I am planning on expose on Karl Marx for the deep end this Tuesday, so make sure you tune in. But it's now in our university systems, and this is why our university students act with such a moral superiority over their elders. This is why they reject uh, established norms in the culture. This is why America is repeatedly vilified by the university students that are being, being pumped into society. Because we, they have been taught that they are morally superior because they know better. They're, they have become the new religious intolerant. But make no mistake, as we look at them, Christians, we better be looking at us. Are we becoming intolerant toward sinners? Are we becoming intolerant toward those who sin differently than us? 
And, and this is what Paul is doing. He is doing this throughout the entire chapter of Romans 2, deconstructing that religious spirit. So let's get into what it means. Okay, so getting back to Romans chapter 2, going on, because now Paul's going to turn the page from who he's talking to, to the uh, theological truth of how God judges. And this is important for us to understand. Look at verse 6. He will render each one according to his works to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality. He will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. Now, this is not teaching, ladies and gentlemen, that if we do good works, we will be saved. No, Paul's not going to contradict what he's about to say in just a few verses in Romans 3.20 when he says, for by the works of the law, no human being will be justified. No, the the key word here is self-seeking. Please circle that in your Bibles, underline that, because this is the key to this this text. If, If you're in it for yourself, you are a religious person, and you can be a non-Christian religious person, and you can be a Christian religious person, but it's really about you. You can be a self-seeking Christian. You can be a self-seeking churchgoer. In Paul's days, and he knew this from experience, you could be a self-seeking Jew. You could be a self-seeking Pharisee. You could be a self-seeking Israelite, okay? And that's exactly the problem with religious people. They aren't in it for God. They are in it for self. They aren't in it to please him and love their neighbor and be an agent of his goodness to others. They are in it for the good life, the praise of men, the attention, the, the, the adulation of his contemporary or her contemporaries. And, and we can't afford to, we can't afford to miss where Paul's going here in, in chapter two, because he's again in diagnosis mode that we are all unrighteous before the father. Uh, R.C. Sproul says about this text, the ground of God's judgment is not our ceremonies, our church affiliations, or our family relationships, but our deeds, okay? And, and those deeds springing from a heart that loves God. So here's where Paul is leading the religious to. Don't put your trust in your outward appearance. Don't put your trust in what you think makes you righteous based on your religious pedigree or or your religious ceremonies. You've got to look for something more. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not about external religion. It's about heart change. So going on, verse 9. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. Now, this is important. He's saying, look, God is not a, doesn't play favorites. Everyone comes to him on, on the basis of his impartiality. And then he goes into a little bit of a theological diatribe here in chapter in verse 12. For all who have sinned without the law will perish without the law. And all who have sinned under law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. Now, let's make sure we're clear on something. God does not judge people for what they do not know. God judges people for what they do know. Now, back to Romans chapter 1, when he says there's a natural revelation that everybody knows, so there's no excuse for anyone. 
But then there's a special revelation called the law, called the Bible. We call it the Bible. The Jews call it the law and Jesus Christ himself. And the more we know, the more accountable we are to what we know. So this is why Jesus will say in verse 48 of Luke chapter 12, he says, the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given of him, much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will be demanded more. In other words, God is going to hold you accountable for what you know. So the, so the argument goes, well, Christianity believes that Jesus is the only way, but what about those people who have never heard? God is going to judge them for what they know. <laughs> and they, aren't, they don't have an excuse because the natural revelation, like we talked about in chapter one, holds us all accountable to God. That being said, some people might make this argument, and I can almost hear it in your head. Well, why don't we not spread the gospel so that people don't know as much and therefore won't be judged as much? That is a ridiculous claim. Here's why. Because of what humankind tends to do to each other when they rebel and reject natural revelation. Like we talked about last week. They turn heartless. They turn ruthless. They turn faithless. They turn, they turn sexually immoral. They destroy themselves. This is why cultures that have been disconnected from the gospel, wherever you go, there is always rampant injustice. I know that our university students have been indoctrinated to believe that the Native Americans who lived on this soil in America before the colonialists got here were living in perfect harmony with one another, in perfect harmony with the universe, perfect harmony with the earth, like the blue people in uh, James Cameron's Avatar movie. <laughs> That's not true. That is historically inaccurate. Uh, there were civil wars. There was cannibalism, uh, rampant cannibalism. There were rights deprived of women and children. You look at what happened right now to the Taliban, to Afghanistan, after America withdrew. Look at what's going on right now. Here you have America's influence of democracy, freedom, liberty, and equal rights. And then we, we basically leave, we abandon the people, and who's suffering? We all can see the news. We all see what's happening. The reports are women, children, minorities, uh, gay people, and uh, disabled people are being destroyed, demoralized. Because this is what happens when you remove the gospel. The gospel is the light of the world. So no, don't make the argument. Let's not go tell them because then God's going to hold them more accountable. No, the gospel is that precious. The gospel is that powerful. It transforms society by transforming the human heart. Okay, now we have to get going further in the text. Verse 14. For when the Gentiles who do not have the law, by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves even though they do not have the law. And then he says, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. This is, this is the most important verse. I'm oh, sorry, word in the verse, the secrets. The secrets of men will be judged. Okay, because the, the, more, the, the, the people who don't have the law they have a law that is on their hearts right here. Verse 15, their conscience bears witness. So even in cultures that have not heard the scriptures, there are typically laws against murder. Uh, there are typically laws somewhat against adultery, fornication, not high laws like in the Bible, but there are some moral laws. There are boundaries that men produce because their conscience, the law written on their hearts is there. 
And as Paul says here, it is either accusing or excusing them. They're either going to reject it or they're going to use it to look down on other people. But the point of the matter is that God is not going to judge by appearances. God is going to judge the secrets of men's hearts. And the judge is Jesus Christ. And what Paul is saying here is that the law is more than skin deep. The law is more than skin deep. So Jesus talks about this in Matthew chapter five. In Matthew chapter five, verse 21, he says, look, you heard it said that you shall not murder. Okay, so the Pharisees prided themselves. I've never murdered. But then, he, but then Jesus turns the table on him. I say to you that if you are angry with someone, if you insult someone, you're liable to the judgment. If you say you fool, you are liable to the hell of fire. And by the way, the word you fool is the word raka, which means you worthless person. So what Jesus is saying, it's not about the outward performance of murder. It's about the inward condition of the heart. The inward condition of the heart produces the word raka towards someone, which is basically emotional murder because you feel that that person is not worth living. The law is more than skin deep. He goes on in that chapter. In chapter five of Matthew, he says, you heard it said that you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, if you look lustfully. So the Pharisees and the religious people prided themselves on, oh, I've never stepped outside of my marriage physically. But Jesus says, you've done this emotionally. You've done this with your eyes. You've lusted. The law is more than skin deep. And then he goes on and he says, you've heard it said an eye for an eye. But I say to you, don't resist an evil person. Turn the other cheek. In other words, the law is not about the external. The law goes deeper. And I say this to the guys that I teach in my, in my leadership class. The problem with the church is not cheap grace. The problem with the church is cheap law. We take the law and we lower it down to a standard that, that our heads can buoy above, like, like it's water. So we're swimming in the ocean of God's law and we just kind of bring the water level down to where we can stand and, and breathe. Here's what Jesus says. The law is actually so far over your head, you have got no shot. You ever been angry with somebody? Have you ever committed, have you ever lusted after somebody? Have you, have you ever tried to get someone back? You're drowning. You're drowning. And that's why Paul says in verse 15, they show that the works of the law are written on their hearts. Their conscience bear witnesses. Conflicting thoughts are in their hearts. And this is why we attack others. And this is why we get on our phones. And this is why we go after other people. Because we know this stuff is in us. It's called projection. This, this, this talk is hard. I, I really believe that this episode is much harder to hear than last week's episode because last week's episode was all about what's wrong with America and all about what's wrong with our world. But this week's episode is about what's wrong with us. <laughs> and you know what? Until we get to the place where we understand there's something wrong with us, we will never get to the place where we know the solution, where we look to the solution. So, so, so we've got to unpack this. We've got to unpack the human condition for the rebellious and for the religious. We've got a spectrum of human spirituality. On the sides of the spectrum are rebellion and religious. And we go one way or the other. We either rebel from God or we get radically religiously devoted to God. Rebellion leads to the imitation of the world. Religion produces fury at the world. Both of these produce a dereliction of duty for the Christian because here's what the gospel does. The gospel comes right down the middle and the gospel says we're all sinners and we're here to reach the world. 
and many people don't realize this, that Israel's condition when Jesus showed up and when Paul was around, this is what Paul was. He was a, re- he was a religious person who was mad at the world. When Jesus shows up, he's dealing with a religious spirit. Israel, before their exile was immoral, they were following the pagan nations. They go into exile for 70 years in Babylon. They come out, they realize rebellion really ruined us. So let's get really religious. Let's get really devoted to the law. Let's really clean up our act. And what they did, unfortunately, the unintended consequences was they removed themselves from the world and they forfeited their responsibility and they only got mad at the world. And that is why, ladies and gentlemen, Jesus doesn't always address all the immoral sins that we want him to address. Most of the time he was talking talking to those religious, prideful people who were mad at the world. He was talking to this, this side of the equation who were abdicating their responsibility to be a light, to reach them. Now let's talk about why all of this matters. All, all of this matters because we are living in a day and age where the rebellious are getting more and more rebellious. And unfortunately, in some respects, the religious are getting more and more so- morally superior. And what Paul has deconstructed is that poisonous religious spirit that our current cultural moment is experiencing. Let me put this on the screen. A religious spirit poisons humanity. It does. It causes divisions and tribalisms. Now, it causes divisions politically. It causes divisions spiritually. It causes divisions ethnically and nationally. Because as long as we have those evil people to look down our noses at, we never have to worry about the sin within our own heart. And, and then we can celebrate our, you know, goodness as opposed to their wickedness. Number two, it seeks absolution through prosecution. As long as I'm pointing the finger at you, I don't have to worry about me. But again, three fingers are pointing back at me. And then number three, it damns the soul to hell because you're not changed. You, you can be, and I've t- said this on this channel before in relation to CRT, in relation to social justice, you can be 100% socially just and still end up in hell because your heart before God stands condemned outside of the redemption and forgiveness that Jesus Christ offers us at the cross. Hard to hear, I know, but it's so true. A religious spirit poisons humanity, which brings me to a transformed heart. A transformed heart heals humanity. A transformed heart comes from the Holy Spirit and not the human spirit. Number two, it seeks to obey God for God's sake. Like that, just like, let's pause there for a second. So much religious ceremony, so much uh, political ceremony, so much of the tribalism of our current cultural moment is based on, I'm doing this, I'm performing these sacred ritual rites or whatever for my own appearance and my own glory. That's called sanctified selfishness. It's not obeying God, it's obeying you. When you're transformed from the heart and you know that God alone by his grace has made you right before him through the death, burial, and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. You obey God because you love God. The first commandment is finally fulfilled in your life. And it ultimately, number three, breaks down petty divisions. This is how we get past tribalism. This is how we get past our hatred for one another. Don't you see how the gospel is the answer for our current cultural moment? Don't you see how the gospel is the answer for Democrats and Republicans? I know there's going to be people that you, this is, you're not a fan of this teaching. I get it. You're not a fan of this teaching because you are so baked into the tribalism of our current moment. You are absolutely certain that you are right and they are wrong. And I'm just going to tell you, this has never worked. This has never worked in human history. It poisons cultures. 
It's really what our problem is right now. And we need to break free from it. Uh, that's the teaching, guys. I, I hope you've liked this episode. I, I, I know this teaching challenges my wheelhouse group. <laughs> what I mean by that is the people who loved last week's, I'm, I'm sure this week was way more like, oh gosh, that really kind of pinched me. Yeah, it does. Because the gospel levels the ground at the foot of the cross. Amen? We should be happy for that because that means you can get in the same way I got in. Uh, guys, do me a favor. As we always ask, check us out at timhatchlive.com. There are things for sale. Uh, there are t-shirts for sale. There are uh, tumblers for sale, all kinds of stuff. Check us out on our social media, Tim Hatch Live, either forward slash or at. We also have 10 questions with Tim coming up the first Thursday of every month, okay? So send in your questions never too early. Those question slots fill up quickly. And then Tuesday night, we will be back to talk about Karl Marx at 7.30 p.m. and other things as well on the deep end. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. I enjoyed bringing it to you. Tune in Tuesday for the deep end. God bless you guys. Have a great week. 